Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a Labour politician who was recently promoted to the Shadow Cabinet in Keir Starmer's reshuffle. Peter Carr is the MP for Hove and a rising star of his party with a huge pile of briefing papers to get through as the new Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. But he is so severely dyslexic that he has a reading age of eight and is frequently criticised on Twitter for getting letters the wrong way round by what he calls the spelling police. He says, I've been tested by systems, by people and by my own brain so much that now I know precisely who I am. Peter Carl, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect here in our offices in London Bridge. There must be so many lengthy documents to read in your new job. Have you ploughed through the Good Friday Agreement yet or the Northern Ireland Protocol? I've, I've ploughed <laughs> through both of those. And this morning I was going through a control paper that was issued over the summer so that I could uh, challenge Brendan Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, over the dispatch box. So I, I want to be informed. And, and this is the strange thing about dyslexia. I love reading. I love consuming information. I mean, I, I get genuine pleasure from the experience of reading and when I hear people say that they don't they don't read books or they never read books I sort of think god you've got this incredible gift and you just don't use it so I do I mean halfway through a a biography of Nelson at the moment for example and I'm really enjoying it but I started it a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) because I I prioritize work reading Uh, so I need to make sure and I need to feel that I'm on top of all the work stuff before I read for pleasure uh, but I do enjoy reading. And just because I'm dyslexic doesn't mean that I don't enjoy reading and the process of reading and the benefits of reading. I do. Uh, I just have this thing that makes it quite challenging. That's so interesting. So we want to go back to your childhood when you first found out about it. And you grew up on an estate in Bognor Regis and your father, Les, had left school at 14 to be an apprentice stonemason. And he then joined the Navy before going to night school and becoming a door-to-door salesman. What did you learn from your dad? Drive. Dad was so driven. He grew up in circumstances that is unimaginable for me, even though I lived up with all these stories. You know, every Christmas you get the story of the Christmas he had as a kid and, you know, on your birthdays you do and, uh, and so forth. And it becomes kind of folklore and it becomes the sort of thing you, you take the mickey out of him about, oh, God, that story again. But the thing about Dad was he wanted his family at all costs to be comfortable and not to have to worry about uh, hand-to-mouth stuff. And for Dad, it was it was riven through him. Uh, he would leave very early in the morning for work. He would come home very late in the evening. But it was every, everything. He just tackled everything with complete 100% focus. So he would be he was quite physical, you know, from his time in the navy. Uh, he would play squash a few times a week. He you know he loved being with men and doing these sort of physical, quite quite. Uh, Uh, full-on sports so he was always doing something Uh, and for me it was cars because I remember him in the 70s with a Ford Cortina 
And then in the early 80s or whenever it was, he came home with this Triumph TR7 that was green and had the lights that went up and down. And I was a little toddler. (laughs) And I used to wash it every week because I was just so amazed at this thing. And I ran the battery down, making the lights go up and down. (laughs) And then a couple of years later, he came home with an entry-level Porsche 924. Oh, my God. Uh, And then skip forward a few years, and we'd moved house by then because we were moving house fairly, not not, not every year, but we were on that ladder and we were on that, that moving forward. Uh, and then by the time I was uh, in my mid-teens, we were living on a private estate and I, I was sitting there one evening watching TV, probably Neighbours or something, and I heard this engine. And by then, Dad and I had a shared love of cars. And I heard this engine. I knew precisely what it was way before it reached uh, the home. And I went running out and there was Dad in a, in a Porsche 911 car the most beautiful thing I still to this day have ever seen in my life has he still got it and no it, but he had he had a few, he had a few of them uh, so what you could trace drive now? he drives a Range Rover Evoque now that he's had for a very long time <laughs> what do you drive though I don't drive you I, don't I, I, I drive but I don't have a car uh, I, 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 when I moved to Brighton I lived in Hove Central Hove in a Regency street with Regency housing I live in a small flat on the top uh, and it just got to the point where it just felt for me irresponsible having a car because I did, really didn't need one because my life was between London and Brighton and along the coast when I go and visit Dad and it didn't quite feel appropriate for me to the car. So I, I put my money where my mouth is when I prattle on about the environment. This is way before I got involved in politics. It was about 10 years ago. Uh, and I just got rid of it. Can you remember what your first memories are? Are they of school or earlier than that? And I, All of my early memories at school were very uncomfortable ones. I don't have any joyful memories of school. I remember a teacher who who was quite formidable because she was a slightly elderly lady who was straight down the line, you know, a very sort of traditional teacher. And she was, I think she was teaching alphabet and she had this image of a swan on this board at the front. And I can't remember exactly what she was asking people to do, but she was getting kids to come forward and put spell words out or order letters in certain ways. And she called on me to come up and she asked me to do something. And I just looked at this and just felt this overwhelming surge of humiliation. And I just had this total meltdown. And I was inconsolable. And, and I didn't know why at the time, but I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't see what was being pointed at at the board, I presume. And I just felt, found that completely overwhelming and just too much. So did you hate it or was it just very confusing or frightening? I didn't enjoy it. I probably did hate it. I, was, you know, I used to cling to mum at the ed- end of the school pathway and a teacher used to come and get me every morning. Uh, and it must have been just awful for mum to have to do it because it's quite traumatic for her every morning having to drop me off and go through this whole palaver of a kid who just didn't want to let go and didn't want to walk down the thing. And she didn't understand why. I didn't understand why, but... Uh, but who who knew? So did the teachers do anything to try and help, or were they just baffled by you, do you think? No, I was just held back. So when they were streaming, I was held back. And yet a few teachers, particularly when I got to secondary, when I got to secondary, everything changes because you have adult conversations with, uh, with with teachers and you have much more direct conversations and relationships with, with teachers. So I knew... I'm not stu- I wasn't stupid. I'm, I was always very, very similar to as I am now in personality type. I think I would recognise myself if I met myself from those those days. Uh, but So I was there thinking, I know I don't belong in this <laughs> classroom. <laughs> I know I'm in the wrong place for what I've got. And I know I've got something. But uh, I know I haven't got that. Mm. Uh, you know, so. so what was the worst moment, do you think, at secondary school? 
Were there some really humiliating times? There's no, there's absolutely no question. For, for me, it was an English class where a teacher said we, we were doing, we were reading Shakespeare, and we all had the book, and we were we were discussing the characters, and then she just suddenly said out of the blue, Peter, why don't you read from page whatever? And I just sort of thought, I remember just thinking to myself, why would you do that? Mm. Why would you do that? You know, a whole classroom full of kids. And by then I was in secondary. You know, I knew that the teacher would know me. She would know everybody else. And she would know that that would be a problem for me. Mm. So I got to my feet and started reading in a really monosyllabic way, stuttering way. And getting the emphasis wrong, getting the pronunciation wrong, and and just feeling myself just sort of slump. And the teacher started laughing. She thought it was genuinely hysterical. And but everyone else in the class, I mean, most of these people were friends or we knew each other. So most of the people in the class, to their absolute credit, were just as embarrassed as I was. Mm. And you could just see them just looking at the floor and slouching in the chairs. There was a couple of people who, who laughed along with the teacher, but not many. And uh, when I sat down, I was just dripping in sweat and uh, angry and very, very, very humiliated. And after that, I, I just switched off. I, I just totally switched off from learning. I didn't even make an attempt to learn after that, really. Mm-hmm. I went through the motions, and I did what I had to do um, to get through to the end of the week, but I didn't learn. You know, And that, for me, is the when I reflect on that period, n- knowing w- what's happened to me since and how, how my personality has overcome things, is I didn't learn to learn as a, as a yeah. as You a must kid. have been so frustrated, though. Was, it, was there this incredible sense that you were falling behind when you knew that you could make something of your life and that you wanted to? Well, I think it's more complex than that. Uh, And I think that for me to say that would give the impression that it was quite a one-dimensional experience because at the same time as as a kid, I was throwing myself into other stuff. I was always very active. We lived very close to the sea, the beach in Bognor Regis, and there was always these dinghies out at the weekends. I joined the scout. I was in the Cubs. I was in the Scouts. I loved all that sort of stuff, something that was structured, something that was active. You know, we were going doing hikes, we were doing physical stuff. I, I'm not, I was never a sporty person, but I loved being active with my hands, communicative, because all that sort of stuff, the scouting movement is very um, uh, relationship-based, it's very team-orientated. Uh, so I loved all that sort of stuff. And one of the scout leaders, when I was a scout, loved sailing, and he used to get groups of scouts together, and he used to build these dinghies or, you know, not in plural, one. And we used to go there and, and help him build, and then you'd learn to sail in them. Mm. So I started, got into sailing, the local sailing club that was not a yacht club that you would think it was a, it was a standard, lovely, uh, dinghy sailing club in Bognor Regis in this place called Felpham. And I just threw myself into that. I loved it. I became the cadet captain. I became, you know, as a teenager, <laughs> I was involved in running the club. Uh, and I was sailing. Every, all weekend, I was just out on the water, just sailing and just, just involved in, in doing that sort of stuff. So I was, you know, I had another bit of life. Mm. And don't forget also, I grew up in a family where nobody had really had a formal education. So, but neither my mum or my dad had had a formal education. My mum came from a very different background. She had private, she was privately educated. And, and I went to boarding school. But my dad was succeeding in life, and he hadn't had an education right. at all. 
So did your parents not worry at all? Did they, they sent you to a specialist, didn't they, at one point? No, the school, I think, oh, said that I did. should go and have a test or have some tests, but it wasn't a dyslexia test. It was, uh, I think it was an, an opticians because uh, my dad said, that thing, that contraption on your head, it was because when we did all these tests on you, somebody noticed you had a wobbly eye and thought that if we sorted out your wobbly eye, it would sort out all the other problems as well. Right. So I had this wooden thing on my head, which I had to put on in the morning and evening, and I had to move these two sort of posts forward and focus on one or the other, and that was supposed to sort everything out uh, physically and all the rest of it. So, I mean, it's weird because I'm not describing a black and white era. You know, we're talking about here the mid mid eighties. Yeah. You know, and then into the late eighties. So, this is a very recognisable era. Uh, the, the changes that have come in in understanding these mm. things, but in those days, no, no one, no one really thought because it was so unseen, and I could always communicate. I could express myself. I could always express myself with, with some precision. precision. And I could always take part in social activities in the classroom and in the school. So I don't think they could conceive that there was something else that was just quite profoundly wrong mm. elsewhere. Mm. And you stayed till you were 18, didn't you? So did you pass any qualifications? So I say that I came out of school with no usable qualifications, which is more accurate, because I got like U's and D's and whatever it was. So I guess they just thought, success is just not letting me go Mm. so I did A-levels I think I did biology theatre studies and something else I can't remember what it was business I think it was I mean it was just (laughs) eclectic I mean there was no there was no you know that in itself should send alarm bells ringing that there is somebody who doesn't have direction and doesn't know what he's doing so and I came out with nothing you know so I, 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 I didn't I think I got like a D or a whatever it was, in one of them. But you were also gay, at that, and at that time yeah. when Section 28 had just come through banning the promotion of homosexuality in schools, did you have a sense of that being a taboo and that being another hurdle that you had to overcome, or were you not really aware of your sexuality at that age? Uh, I wasn't aware in explicitly about it. I, the, the, clearly, you know, so, so academically, there was this thing that just wasn't there. But then sort of emotionally... You've got this other thing there because I knew that I was not attracted to girls and I knew I wasn't forming those sort of romantic relationships in the way that other people were. And I did have uh, crushes, but it, it that bit of my life just wasn't switched on. You know, it was. it's amazing for me when I hear young people talking about their sort of sexual identity and their, their other identities. I mean... In the 80s, in Bognor Regis, we weren't sitting around talking about our identity <laughs> in any way, shape or form. I mean, we just weren't. In the school I went to, which was, I, I guess, you know, 1,200 kids or, or whatever, I think I knew one person who was gay and he was extremely flamboyant. He mm. was very camp. Mm. And, and he owned it. You know, and I, you know, that must have been quite a thing to do. Um, but it was just sort of... It, it was just so otherworldly in terms of the mainstream uh, experience of schooling then. But I do remember Section 28, and I was in a classroom where we were learning a text that had a same-sex relationship in it, and the teacher said, I have to just point out, because of government regulations, that the relationship we're learning about is not a normal relationship. So how did and, you feel? Oh, I blushed. Did you? So, yeah, 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 yeah. You did I could feel, you know. yeah. And, and, and so I remember it because I, I remember blushing and thinking, 
Why are you blushing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was some subconscious thing talking to you, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't think oh, that's me. Yeah. I didn't think therefore this, but I knew there was something there, and I knew that there was if there was. Uh, somebody else in the class who was, you know, that I would have had a conversation about it. But even saying the words, God, I reacted to that in a way I didn't expect to a friend. You know, I've probably got some thinking to do. That's a one-way street. Back then, yes, that you, you say that, that's a one-way street. You don't, you don't come back from it. And I wasn't ready to go down that because I, I didn't know. Mm. And your mum left suddenly when you were eighteen. What happened? And how did you actually find out that she'd gone? Yes, that happened soon after I left school. So I left school at 18. Uh, I was very close to mum. You know, I, I, was, I was really, you know, quite, uh, you know, emotionally very connected to mum. Much more so than dad. I mean, she was much more present for a start. And that's not a criticism of dad. I've always explained what he was off doing. And I was very proud of him. And, but... Uh, I left school, I, I went for all these jobs, loads of different jobs, and weirdly, because being quite socially capable, I was being offered loads of jobs, and I would start these jobs, and they were completely eclectic. One of them was working in a local office selling, I don't know, tiddlywinks, and the next one was uh, working in a mortgage selling place, call centre, in Slough. And I was going through all these things, and I'd start on the first day, and I'd think, this isn't me, and I'd get up and walk out. And I'd always go say, I'm terribly sorry, there's been a terrible mistake. (laughs) (laughs) I really shouldn't be in this company. And I'd leave. And my mum just said to me one day, find a job, a company you want to work for. Stop going through this ridiculous charade of going for these interviews, getting the interview, and then walking out. So that's how I settled on the body shop's head office. Uh, the body shop was nearby, going through the roof. Anita Roddick was becoming a household name. This is the late 80s. We're talking 88, 89. I was 18. And I went for an interview. I, I tried to get a job there. They wouldn't even interview me. I went to a headhunter and said, all I want is a job in the body shop. Don't put me up for anything else. They said, we can't do it. So I drove to the body shop's head office. I sat in their reception until somebody would come and see me. And they saw me early afternoon. I'd been there since 8.30. And then they offered me the lowest paid job in the whole company. Uh, I hated the, the job. I loved the company. I was in the accounts department, keying invoices into the <laughs> that I was just appalling at. Not playing to your strengths. But <laughs> I was buzzing with the company and I really wanted to succeed there. And whatever the barriers to succeeding there, I would overcome them. So I used to go in secretly on a Sunday and work so that nobody knew I was falling behind. And the only other person that would come in on Sunday that I ever saw was Anita Roddick. And, of course, she would just come into the car park, zip up to her office. You know, she, she wouldn't really see me. But then after a few weeks of this, she did notice me. And she came over to my, to my desk and we started chatting. So that was starting to happen in my life. And I suspect that mum thought, I think Pete's okay. And I came home from work at the body shop uh, quite soon after I had started there. And came home and there was a note on the on the table when I walked in, didn't even read it because I just assumed it would be she'd be playing tennis or she was off doing something or other. And then later on, Dad came in and just walked in, said hello, picked the note up and then just stood there and I knew something was happening because so the, the, the atmosphere in the room changed and I turned around and Dad was there shaking uh, with this, this note and then he asked if I knew and I'd, I had no idea what he was talking about and then he just shot out of the house and wheels spun down the road and I saw the note on the floor and she just said she'd gone but she'd also just gone with my dad's best friend oh my goodness so it was uh you know who was also 
was like a surrogate dad to me because dad was very busy, you know, and we, we were, there was this other family in our lives and this other family, we, we, became, we were like, we were like one family, you know, since, mm-hmm. since I was a toddler, their daughter and, and children and, and sons were like brothers and sisters to me. We were incredibly close. Every Christmas we were together, every holiday we ever went on together, camping holidays, we were together as mm-hmm. two families. And then that happened. They went off. Um, I, I didn't hear from mum for a long time afterwards. They literally eloped. So that 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 incredibly important relationship just 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 went, just literally just went. Uh, what happened to the two families then? Did you, did you see the other children? Again? Oh, of course. You know that that second. The first thing I did was get in the car and go over there. They'd had their note, and we just sat in complete stunned because we were, you know, our families. My my mum, my mum was very social, and Mick. The, the man who became my stepdad, very social. So, you know, there was always a pull towards our families. We always organised things, barbecues in the summer. There was always just activity. You know, my dad's best friends was Mick, who was a builder, uh, another Mick, who was a plumber, uh, Keith, who ran a, whole, a wholesale carpet company. So these were boisterous, self-made, hugely charismatic loving and fun people to be around and that they were the people I was around all my life growing up it made me very comfortable with adults larger than life figures there was lots of smoking and drinking and noise and laughter and quips they they weren't political but they had an opinion on everything <laughs> and uh, and I loved all of that and then suddenly of course the, the sort of force at the, the 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 heart of that just just fractured and it's not. This isn't like a nationwide thing. It's not like, you know, a royal divorce. This is. This is. This is our social network, our families, and this incredible group of families who had just gone on this real '80s journey together with a group of families because we were all. They were all. You know, he was a wholesaler, but he built it up into a significant company. You know, Mick was a plumber doing his thing. Uh, he was a builder, but he ended up with a big team of mm. builders working with him. You know, these were people who were just doing things and creating things, and they were larger than life. So that all just, it, it, it fell apart. And I didn't hear from mum for, for a number of years. It was just before my 21st birthday that the phone rang, and it was her on the other end. But just, just, just to skip forward to the end, because there was obviously, that's a very difficult learning journey that we went on in that period uh, she uh, she she was misdiagnosed she was diagnosed this was in 2012 with, for, with back pain and she went for all these tests with back pain but it turned out she had lung cancer that was diagnosed and she died about four or five weeks after being diagnosed with lung cancer but in that period by then I had a partner uh, she had she was she was not easy with me being gay um, but when she, as soon as she saw me, the, the second she saw me with someone that I was in love with, it just ch- changed. Literally, that instant when she recognised that her son was in love with someone and very comfortable, everything changed with her. And, and that was a big part of us really moving forward mm-hmm. together as a, you know, as a mum. And, and also my partner, family was absolutely central, front and central to him. And he, without me knowing, stayed in very close touch with mum because he thought, it, and he had lost his mum uh, of cancer at quite, at quite a young age. So all these sorts of things conspired, and all these, this sort of framework for a new relationship was being built around me. Uh, and mum and I had a very, very, uh, when, she was, when she was in hospital, uh, quite probably two weeks before she died, I was sitting in there very early one morning with her, just the two of us, and she was sleeping, and she woke up, and then just said very... Um, 
uh, directly when she saw me, you know I've always loved you. And she, you know that even during that time, uh, I, I had to do what I did because I had to just break away. And the reason I didn't write to you was because I couldn't face it. Uh, and I just said, of course I know I've always, you've always loved me. You always know I've always loved you, don't you? Despite the things I've said and the anger I've exhibited. And she said, I know. And that was it. I didn't need any more. She didn't need to say any more. It was just done. And that was a real gift that we could do. And, and then when she did die, she died in my arms. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the Labour politician Peter Kyle. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the Shadow Minister for Northern Ireland, Peter Kyle. How did you manage to get into university without any qualifications? I went back to school and spoke to one of the teachers called Mr Kingston, who I really liked, very charismatic, really, you know, he, he was great. And I, I trusted him, I hadn't seen him since I left. So I wait, drove on to school, waited for him to finish a class, and I just said, you know, Mr Kingston, he said, call me Larry, I think now. <laughs> and he said, I, I, I talked him through the, the, the conundrum I was in, and he then called me a couple of days later and said, I've been thinking about that conversation that we had. I went to speak to the headmaster, and the truth is, we would like to help you out. So why don't you come back to the school, sit informally in my classes, and then at the end of the year, we will enrol you with all the other students. We'll sneak you onto the exam roll, basically. Mm. And they actually felt a bit guilty about me. Not... They haven't been sort of like wrapped with guilt ever since I left. But when I went to them and sort of said, this is the position I'm in now, they clearly felt a bit of duty towards mm. getting me across the line. So I think we all felt that we had this opportunity to get me across the line. So I did. What was it like sitting with lots of other 16-year-olds in a classroom? Because how old are you by then? 25. Right. <laughs> that must have been really funny. <laughs> yeah, um, it was. I mean, the first time, I remember very well walking in the very first time, because I sort of stood outside, took a deep breath, walked in, and he wasn't in the classroom yet. So I just, they all thought I was a supply teacher, obviously. And I just said, I'm not the supply teacher. I'm here to learn as well. And I sat pretty much in the middle rather than, I thought I'm going to have to own this. So I wouldn't allow a potentially humiliating situation to be humiliating. I wouldn't be humiliated by that situation. I just threw myself into it and I was quite proud of what I was doing. And also I was very driven. I knew what I was there for and nothing was going to stop me. And I tell you, those students, I love them to this day. They were brilliant with me. None of them were, you know, I don't know. They weren't what you'd expect. They were just really uh, respectful of it. You know, it was still the same comprehensive school, very recognisable to the school that I'd gone to. This is 1995 now. And uh, they were, so it was very characterful. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, there were lots of kids in there with lots of character. And they were, they were just brilliant with me. And I took it seriously. I didn't patronise them. I didn't talk down to them. I didn't act like I was other. Uh, I did all the work I was asked to do. I participated, even when there were some questions that were clearly a little bit beneath where I was. 
I participated with sincerity. I went on to field trips with them. We went on a day, day trip to France <laughs> together, and I went as a student on it. And then right at the end of the year, I got the grade I needed, and I applied to university again, and they rejected me. Oh, no. Yeah. So they rejected me again, even after I got what they wanted, and I had the marks for it. So this is the bit where, you know, normally the story's just too long when, when you're writing up this sort of story or telling it. But the, actual, the truth of how I got into university is... I then told Anita Roddick, who by that time we were very close, and she was so loving towards me, and she was a, she was a remarkable character. I told her. She then called the university and said that she would return her honorary doctorate. She had an honorary doctorate from Sussex. <laughs> that she would return the honorary doctorate from Sussex uh, unless... Uh, and then she said, and it won't be quietly, you know, they knew who she was, and uh, unless you have Peter Kyle as a student. And I was accepted to be a student remarkably... Uh, the next day. Did you know what dyslexia was by that stage? I knew the name, I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I'd heard the name, I, I, didn't, I didn't have to go and look up what it was, but I, I didn't know anything about it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I went to see, there was an office on the university where they could refer somebody and they referred me to someone. I went along and had this, it was an enormous long process. I mean, it, it was a long day of different things, word comprehension and then do, putting puzzles together and then doing all these different exercises in different ways and then a lot of auditory uh, stuff as well and memory tests. It was a really, really arduous... I thought it would just be going to like a textbook or multiple choice or something mm. or other. Uh, but it was, it was a really arduous process. And then sometime later I got this report and, God, it was the most amazing thing. It was just the most amazing thing. And it, you just read this report and it was like somebody describing your mind and and it was all it was very graphic. So there were lots of graphs, and they they plotted uh, where you were in the which percentile you were, you were compared to the the general population on lots of different exercises and different bits of cognitive ability and expressive abilities. And I was in almost all of them. I was either in the top five percent or bottom five percent. Mm-hmm. So the chart was it was like a zigzag it was just a total zigzag like one of those heart monitors you see uh, you see in films and things and it was uh, really extraordinary and, and and it was explained to me that actually if you're outside of the the, the, the middle decile then you've got you're probably dyslexic. Mm. Well, I was at the extremes. And how did you get your doctorate? Because that is extraordinary <laughs> yeah, to go from no. you know, not having any O-levels to getting an A-level to finally getting into university and then deciding, well, you know, let's just go for a doctorate now. Well, the, uh, the university, I was coming towards the end of my time as an undergraduate. I'd levelled out. I was a bit gobby at the start and I, uh, I was probably a bit disruptive at the start. Uh, I was very, always very noticed as a student because I was... You know, I knew exactly why I was there, and if I thought that, you know, I just worked my socks off, and if the, and I, I took took part of everything, and then I was called in to see to buy a tutor, and he just said there was another one there as well, but but one of them just said, look, we'd love to have you to do a doctorate, and we'd like to make you an offer to do one. So there's an area of research that he had been involved in, and hasn't been finished, and he thinks there's a gold mine of of research that needs to be doing there, and there's a real demand for it. Would I consider? thinking about doing it and staying to do it. And I said, well, of course I'll think and consider it. And I left the room, went straight over to the library and said to the librarian, have you got anything that explains what a doctorate is? I had absolutely no idea. I knew that people had the title. I had no idea what it involved or what it was or how it was done. So I read all that stuff, went back to see them, and I said, I'll do it. 
And they said, great, well, let's talk about your master's. And I said, I'm not going to do a master's. I'm not, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. So I, I ended up doing it without the master's and jumped straight in. Uh, so the, the doctorate was the most difficult thing. Uh, that I've, it, That's the most I've pushed my brain uh, in my life. Uh, and I, I went far too far because I wasn't going to go a day over three years. I was going to do that thing and submit it in three years, come hell or high water. When I came to the end, I had given everything I had to give, and my, my supervisor actually said, you haven't, it's not, you're not at the standard yet, you haven't got it there, mm. it needs more work. And I've said, I've done three revisions, there's nothing else left. And he said, if you f- submit it, you, fa- you will fail. Mm. And, and I just said, well, at least I'll be able to move on in life. Mm. I, emotionally, I can move on whether I pass or fail. So I submitted it, did the Viva, and it passed with no corrections. So it's not just being the first dyslexic, severe dyslexic that, that Sussex had got through a doctorate. It passed, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of went straight through. Which, it, And I say that not to say how great I am. I say it to people who are listening to this who have unseen challenges or challenges that they don't even understand themselves, that you can do these things. Mm. You know, you can do these things and nobody can tell you you can't and then you also came out as gay in um a university yeah. when when did you re- what happened how did you realize you were gay <laughs> the, the, doing the doctor was far more dramatic yeah. In, yeah. in narrative terms <laughs> yeah. because it was just so easy because at yeah. university i had space and i decided you know because me you know you, you'll get a sense now that i'm somebody that sort of does things in my own terms i don't really take what people tell me at face value about myself and my actions and what's in my interest. I do it in my own terms. And I'd come to the point where actually, for the first time in my life, it was an issue because I wanted to be with someone. And I said to myself, I had a conversation with myself, and I said, you want to be with someone. Who's it going to be? It's going to be a bloke. It was that simple. Mm. And it was that untraumatic. And I hope that that in some way is liberating for people who always think that coming out is this sort of life-shattering, life-changing moment where emotion pours forth and the whole world stops because rainbows are coming out of your ears. <laughs> uh, because actually, it was for me, it was just that, you know. So I then rang my best mate, and we were very, very close. And I knew that people would say, because we were close, and he didn't have a girlfriend, I knew that people would instantly say to him, are you, you know, what are you? So I, I, I told him. We had a conversation. I left it like forty-eight hours, and and we had a few chats. And I wanted I wanted to talk to him a lot about it. So bless his absolute cotton socks, he put up with me uh, talking about it. And then uh, I thought I've got to take my family now. Uh, my mum was was kind of back in my life in in a, in a sort of dysfunctional way, and I so I thought, what do I do? There was a tutor I loved, I adored, and he was. He was just somebody I looked up to. So I went to see this tutor and I just said, can I ask a question? And he was expecting a question about Marxist th- approach to agrarian development or something. <laughs> in the, in the, uh, and I said, you've got two kids. How would you like one of them to tell, them, tell you they're gay if they needed to do so? And he went, well, Peter, I, I haven't thought of that. Um, well, come back and see me tomorrow. He said, but don't do anything before then. He said, and as I walked away, he went... Not on a phone. I wouldn't want them to tell me on a phone. So I went, okay, then I'll see you tomorrow. So I go back and I'm faffing around and all, and all that and just thinking, and I just thought, actually, I know. I know in myself. And now I know. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. So I picked up the phone and called my dad and told him. And then I picked up the phone and told my mum. Mm. And then I picked up the phone and told my brother. 
my brother was hysterical because he just burst out laughing and goes, God, that must be so embarrassing to have to tell someone that. We're total chalk and cheese, me and my brother. We get on very, very we have a very lovely relationship now. And he's a postman in Brighton. And Sorry, he was a postman in Brighton. And just deli- when I got elected, he delivered to my office. And then he's moved to London and now he delivers around Westminster. <laughs> where I, so he literally is following me around and I see him outside in the... Uh, I see him in Victoria Street every now and then, yeah. And have you found a sort of loving, caring relationship that you wanted, the one that you felt when you decided to come out as gay? Yes, not for a while. I mean, I did... You know, there is, there, there is a point, I think, where most people do come out where you do... You know, you you, 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 <laughs> you go out there and um, meet a lot of people, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed just you know not necessarily you know shagging lots of people, but I, I enjoyed <laughs> I enjoyed meeting a lot of people. I enjoyed you know uh, just getting to know lots of people, and uh, and and yes, having uh, lots of fun with that as well, and exploring outside of my life. And then, but I always knew from the outset that I wanted to be with someone. And I would, I wanted a a relationship that was a, was a proper long term relationship. That came a little bit later uh, in life, when I was actually at a bar, and my a very good friend I was with saw that I was looking at someone, uh, but didn't have the guts to go over and say hello. And then this person walked past me and he shoved me into him. <laughs> so we literally went tumbling forward. Uh, yeah, and and he he ended up becoming the only really significant long term relationship that I've had, which was which was lovely, and and again a learning journey in its own right. <laughs> Relationships are not like a Richard Curtis film, uh, and that's a skill that that I had to to learn as well. Your partner sadly died around the same time as your mum. Was that a sort of tipping point for you in your life? What what happened? Yes, he died actually five or six days before my mum died. Uh, and he did die very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And there will be a time in my life when I talk about this be- because it was the most powerful, uh, pungent and debilitating uh, impact I've ever had in my life. Uh, it was, uh, And grief is something we don't talk about nearly enough. I, I don't think death we talk about nearly enough. And considering the era we've just gone through and there's been so much of it, mm-hmm. it's incredible how little we talk about uh, death uh, and the impact that grief has on people. And it was completely and utterly profound in every way, shape or form. And I didn't rebuild my life by accident. I had to rebuild after that with, with help and grit and determination. But that is something I will talk about when I'm ready because I would like to, but I'm just not ready for it yet. And was that the moment you also wanted to go into politics? Was it was that a sort of almost a cathartic moment that you felt you had to move on in that way? Yeah, I mean that those both of those things, both of the losses that I I <clears throat> felt uh, experienced in that time, you know, mum being my past, my partner being my future, both disappearing so so quickly, you do get the chance to move forward in a different way. And I had uh, finished at university. I had gone to work in Downing Street to work on the social exclusion brief for Hilary Armstrong, who was Secretary of State for uh, Social Exclusion in the Cabinet Office. So I got involved in politics from a policy way and also a, uh, a campaigning and political way. I'd also got very involved in doorstepping just in the previous sort of period down in, in Brighton and Hove. Uh, and I, j- I didn't intend to go into it, 
but I was going in that kind of direction. I always thought I could become an aid worker. I did the doctorate so I could take that back into aid work. I didn't expect this to happen. And then these moments happened in my life and uh, uh, an opportunity, opportunities started to present itself. The, the, the seat in Hove where I lived uh, became available and I just thought, well, I just want to stand up in front of people who I respect because my local party I've been a member of for a long time and just say who I am and say who I am. This is who I am. This is what my politics are. This is what I want to achieve in politics. Take it or leave it. I was not the most likely candidate. Uh, it was a Tory seat. It was not a Labour seat. It was not likely that Labour were going to win that seat again. So the party had suggested I go elsewhere. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to stay and live where I am and enjoy the community that I was part of at the time. And have there been some really terrifying moments in the Commons where you just suddenly can't read your notes, suddenly lose your train of thought? Yes, but actually my maiden speech was one of the most terrifying moments of my entire life. I've been there for six hours. Uh, My dad, my brother... Some very close friends, my best friends, were sitting up there in the public gallery. My dad was didn't want to leave for six hours because he thought if he left, he'd miss me. Because <laughs> we didn't know how it all worked. I didn't know how it worked, so I, didn't, I barely left. So by the time John Burko, the speaker, calls my name, uh, I'd been there for six hours. I was dehydrated. Uh, I was all over the place. And then it was right at the end of the debate when the House fills again because a vote's about to happen. So the whole House was there. And then I just heard, Peter Kyle. <laughs> and uh, and also about two minutes beforehand a message came from the speaker saying you haven't got the full full 10 minutes you can get it down to six so I had to sort of edit it and then do it and then I stood up uh, and I could see almost nothing on the page but I knew that that, that might happen and I had practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced I had gone into a committee room upstairs that was empty uh, which is which is a very big room and I had belted out my speech probably 50 times so I knew the first paragraph off by heart anyway. So I knew that if I could just get the first paragraph out, I would relax and I would be able to just then get back into it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but my mouth was dry. My voice was just weird. And, but I got it out and I looked up afterwards and there was my dad uh, and I could just see his face. And I'll remember that for the rest of my life. Mm. And it must be infuriating for you in a way now to see someone like Boris Johnson, who's had kind of huge advantages, but also found learning pretty easy and then on top of that the idea that he could just be making up things about parties or you know that, that what's happening now the honesty and the truth when you say that that you're husting that you spoke the truth do you find now that you're frustrated by politicians at the moment yes I get things wrong there's a couple of times when I've admitted I've got things wrong when I've gone back and asked my team that fact I just said was it <laughs> did I get it wrong and they're like yeah you did uh, and, uh, and and I'll, I'll I'll correct it and a couple of times I've just said on Twitter or something I've got something wrong and you get you do get a lot of credit for it actually but the difference between me and Boris Johnson is I aspire to connect with people who disagree with you and there are times where you just you do in the politics you have to do the theatre and you have to be theatrical and you do have to you know punch the your opponents I'm fine with that and I do it but in general, my mission in politics is actually to bring people together and connect with people who would ordinarily disagree with you. So when I see the way that Boris Johnson conducts his politics, that's what I find completely and utterly offensive. I find him lazy uh, and I find him dismissive and I find he has, he has an ease with other people's discomfort that I find really quite disturbing. And I remember very, very well the moment when Parliament was recalled after the unlawful prorogation 
and he had coined the phrase Surrender Act around the bill, that w- the, 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 the legislative uh, mechanism that by which Parliament was making itself heard at the time. And he started using it again. Now, Paula Sheriff was sitting a couple of over from me, the MP for Dewsbury at the time. She had undergone some some pretty violent harassment, in, uh, threats, vi- vi- threats of violent harassment. She had had graffiti uh, using Boris, language, Boris Johnson's language over her house. She lived alone. And she, he then came back and started jabbing his finger at pe- individuals on our side and saying, you know, surrender, traitor, these words. And, she, and, and Paula was just started to shake. And she stood up and said, please don't use that language. Can we just change the language? And he saw how uncomfortable it made her. And then he said, but it is a surrender. And he pointed at her again. And it is a tra- traitor. It's treacherous. And he started doing this and jabbing his finger at, at her. And at that point, I just thought, you know, that we're dealing with somebody who actually has... He has an ease. He, he, I don't think he feels other people's discomfort. He actually takes pleasure from having a political purpose to other people's, you know, really very, very deep, deep discomfort, distress. Even there were people leaving the chamber in tears. Paula left the chamber in tears. It, we all left fe- felt feeling shaken from what was happening. Um, we need to fix our politics based on the experience of the last uh, five or ten years. And I think we just start with it by rethinking how we uh, select candidates, how we, who we reward in politics. And I think we need to sort of think about things that are old-fashioned in our politics. When you, the oath of allegiance, when you become an MP, the very, very first thing you do on the very first day of becoming an MP, you stand in front of the speaker, you put your hand uh, in the air, and you say, I, I swear allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen, her heirs and successors. That is the only thing you swear to as an MP. Of course we should do that, and we should retain it. But should we not all also add a few more sentences to that i will also uh, i will also tell the truth i will represent my community with dignity i will uphold the dignity of parliament in the way i conduct my affairs you know a, a statement about how you'll conduct the your business as an mp with truthfulness dignity and respect you know i think we've got to the point in our politics where actually we need to remind people at the beginning and make people swear an oath to do those things as well as uh, just the, the the bare necessities of you know being being a patriot. Thinking back to yourself at primary school, what do you wish you'd known then that you now know? Well, I mean, primary I think would be a bit young to to go and have a heavy conversation with about <laughs> all the things you have in life. I mean, I, I would, you know, I would have a frank conversation with myself as a teenager, and I wouldn't say that as a teenager I was doing anything wrong, but I would certainly. You know, I would certainly reassure myself that persisting is the right thing to do. Being comfortable with making mistakes is something that's good to do. But you know, personally, I would, I would probably have a chat with myself about uh, forgiveness, which would have probably expedited the healing of the relationship. That would have led to more years of uh, functional, loving mother son. <laughs> <laughs> time than we actually actually got to have so uh, yeah so I think that that's probably what I'd say to myself when I, when I was young because it, look I'm here I mean how could I how could I sit here I've made it into the shadow cabinet you know I'm uh, you know labor is is on the up it's it's becoming more ma- magnetic and I've been a part of the team 
that he's making that happen. I'm not saying I'm, you know, the part. You know, I'm a, I'm a small cog in a big machine, but I'm part of that. How could I then go back and say, you need to do things really differently <laughs> when you're a kid? You're going to have to pull your socks up and, and you know, pull your finger out. and that, Otherwise, it'll all go hideously wrong. Uh, I've, I've met some amazing people in my life. I have had such a fun uh, life. Uh, and, you know, one thing Anita Roddick taught me was how to be naughty. She was the naughtiest person I've ever met <laughs> in my life. Uh, and that's something that's always gone with me as well. And I've never forgotten the, the naughtiness of life as well. So, you know, these are things I'm extremely grateful for. So if I saw myself at 14, I'd, I think I'd much rather just look from a, observe from afar and, you know, just have a look at myself then rather than going over and interfering in any way. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the Labour MP and Shadow Minister for Northern Ireland, Peter Kyle. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to all our previous guests, just go to the free Times Radio app or wherever else you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you more remarkable stories from extraordinary people on Past Imperfect soon. Until then... Thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.